Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Athletic. The race is on, and Red Bull took a record-breaking 12 consecutive Formula 1 victory courtesy of that man Max Verstappen, but after being beaten to pole position, why did the chasing pack look like a bunch of Formula 2 cars, as Toto will put it, in the race, and where did Lewis Hamilton's Saturday pace come from? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Mal, Mark Hughes, and Josh Suttill. Well, Mark, we'll say hello to you first, because unlike the rest of us, you are not on site, but you've been following very closely from afar. As always, how's the weekend been for you? Yeah, it's been um, a very, very interesting weekend, especially over the, the last two days. There's a lot to get into. And um, yeah, there, there was a, a lot of sort of heightened excitement, wasn't it, before this race because of what had happened in qualifying. So um, particularly given the histories of the, the two guys on the front row. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it sort of... Uh, didn't quite come together in the way that uh, we, we might have hoped, but it was still very interesting. Yeah, there was certainly plenty going on, lots to talk about. And Scott, obviously you're sat about a metre from me at the moment, so we're in the corner of my hotel room in uh, Budapest. You're looking particularly enthusiastic at this time of night? Oh, I feel fine. Um, I thought it was, uh, I think it's been quite quite a good uh, good weekend of, of action. Obviously, the, the close nature of qualifying didn't quite translate into that. We were joking earlier this evening how I think the closest ever top 10 or something like that in F1 history turned into a more than half a minute victory for Max Verstappen on Sunday. But I love the Hungarian Grand Prix. I I like this this race. I like being on the outskirts of the city. I like how, I'll say politely, rustic elements of the track are. Um, so yeah, it's a good one, and um, there's been a lot to lot to dig into on track and obviously off track as well. There's been some stuff going on. Daniel Ricciardo's comeback, so it's been a fun one. I'm I am fully optimistic and enthusiastic about this podcast. It is slightly unnerving though, because this is always the race before the summer break. Except this year, it isn't. I think it's the same next yeah, year. Yeah, we all need to make sure that we don't just switch off now, for like, otherwise we just completely miss the Belgian Grand Prix. Well, we won't be doing that for uh, for Spa. We'll be all guns blazing for that. And Josh Suttil, who's garnering a reputation for weird flights times back so we're recording very 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 late on sunday night and we'll probably finish maybe even in the small hours of sunday no monday monday next day don't know what day it is and you're flying at 6 a.m explain yourself what's the thinking there well you know quick flight back get back to the uk in good time and you know uh, just really get into the meat of this weekend and and, and see what themes can be had you know the, the quicker i'm back the quicker I can get into that. So, uh, yeah, well, why, why wait all day to fly when you can fly first thing in the morning and get a, a three uh, a taxi at 3.30am 
in the morning. That, 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 that's a great idea. It sounds to me like someone's just looking to take a few hours off in the morning while we're piling into all of the really urgent stuff on Monday after the race. So then he, he'll rock up around midday, oh, anything I can help with, and we'll have taken care of it all. Although as far as aware, I think I'm the only person, well, of the three of us in this room, who isn't seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer tomorrow. We're not seeing Barbie, but we are seeing Oppenheimer, hopefully, in the Budapest IMAX. So, Mark, you're really missing out. We absolutely would do the double bill if we had time, though. That's that's not the uh, that's not the concern. But uh, yeah, um, I think Josh is taking some lessons from Fred Vasseur there, where it's kind of trying to shrug off something that's not gone very well as, as actually fine. But anyway, we've got some big things to talk about, so let's get on with it. Mark, today's variation on the how the race was won question is why did Max Verstappen lose out on pole position to Lewis Hamilton by just three thousandths of a second on Saturday, but was then able to waltz to victory by over half a minute on race day? A couple of things. Um, the Red Bull is always much better in the race than in qualifying, as we know. And even before Hamilton's pole, it already been beaten to pole this season by Leclerc and Baku, twice actually as a, as a sprint weekend. So we come to a place where the car's aero efficiency advantage isn't as greatly rewarded, and it still has its slightly under temperature um, front tyre trait. So that was good enough. That was enough for someone to sneak in there and ace them. Uh, Fernando Alonso almost did it to them for the same reasons in Monaco, if you recall. Here it was Lewis Hamilton around a track at which he always excels. Uh, no one at Merck, though, was kidding themselves was going to be Red Bull fast in the race. Um, they might have made more of a race of it if Hamilton had won the start, but even then it would probably not have made any difference to the result. The Red Bull's race day performance advantage here was huge. Max reckoned it was up with Spa last year as the best of his F1 career. Uh, one of the reasons its balance wasn't good enough for, for Stappen to take pull was that it was set up with a an understeer balance in order to protect the rear tyres on race day um, around a track where that's always a huge challenge. Uh, everyone else was, of course, even Hamilton, but maybe more so for Red Bull. Plus, and this is something you can read in more detail about in my race analysis on the website, Mercedes went very adventurous with its bodywork cooling, and that for sure got Hamilton pole. Because compared to the much more extensive openings on the Red Bull's bodywork, it was worth a hell of a lot more than three thousandths of a second. That difference is typically measured in chunks of tenths of a second. So he did definitely played a crucial part of them getting pole, but it, it meant he had to control his power unit temperatures in the race, as you may have heard. So as soon as Max won the start, it was game over for everyone else, um, as usual, but even more so. Yeah, he was gone. Although, even with all of those factors in qualifying, it still depended on Max Verstappen underachieving a little bit. Yeah, he wasn't happy with the the car as well. It was tricky, but he was just over two tenths off his theoretical ideal best. So there was the kind of pace in there if he could get it all working. So uh, yeah, one of those uh, slightly difficult sessions, but yeah, in the race, absolutely fine. It's just one of those tracks where that trade off sometimes a little bit more extreme when it comes to setup and qualifying versus uh, versus race pace mentioned the start there Scott what did you make of, of Hamilton's start he went backwards quite quickly didn't he yeah I wasn't particularly impressed by it I I I my assumption was going to be that we were going to see the the tendency for the Mercedes powered cars to make strong starts continue and I actually thought Hamilton would lead Norris out of turn one and Verstappen would probably slot into into third but as it was Verstappen got that great launch Hamilton felt to me don't know about the rest of you it felt to me like Hamilton was a little bit preoccupied obviously trying in vain to keep hold of the lead with Verstappen and then that allowed Piastri to 
slip through, mug him a little bit into turn one. And then I think it was a bit six to one, half a dozen to the other of whether it was, you know, great move from Norris or a little bit lax from Hamilton. But to then get passed by the other McLaren and then into turn two was obviously the nail in the coffin for the, you know, holding a strong position at the start of the race and set the tone for Lewis's first in. And I know we'll get onto him properly in a minute, but also made Lando's race, didn't it, getting in front of the Mercedes early on. Yeah, exactly. Very much shaped the race. And although it effectively rendered the uh, the question of who was going to win a, a non-event, we were hoping that might be spun out for a little bit longer just to keep the suspense going. It did actually set the field quite nicely for the uh, the race that was to come and the storylines that were to follow, which we'll talk about. But Josh, you've been paying particularly close attention to Mercedes this weekend. So what did the team and Lewis Hamilton make of how the race played out against the slightly heightened expectations set by qualifying? Although we should say they probably weren't fooling themselves into thinking they were going to be winning. Yeah, they were delighted on Saturday, but as you said, obviously they had the the expectations in check. Although I got the feeling that they probably didn't quite expect Verstappen to be that good on Sunday. I mean, really, well, the gap was 33 seconds, 34 seconds. I think really with, with some pushing, it could have been easily a minute, if not more. Um, he had plenty of pace in hand and... Um, ultimately, I think that's what really kind of hit Mercedes. I mean, you know, had they been on the podium or fourth, I'm, I'm not sure there'd have been a, a huge difference. But yeah, Hamilton was a, a completely different figure from from Saturday to Sunday. On, on Saturday, he was enjoying driving this car for basically the first time in a year and a half. Uh, on Sunday, I, I don't think he was enjoying it too much. But um, yeah, you know, plenty of work still to do for Mercedes. Uh, it's a difficult one. They're kind of hanging in there as the arguably second fastest car that they seem to think they had the edge on McLaren. I think Norris said that, you know, if Hamilton had got through, he would have got second. So, you know, it's it's all kind of relative and, and really the only marker is Red Bull. And, and the fact was they on Sunday, they were absolutely miles away from, from, from Red Bull. So I think that's what kind of hurt the most, even more than obviously losing out on probably what should at least be in one podium, if not two, if, if Russell had a, had a more normal qualifying. It's a classic shape of the season kind of thing, isn't it? That on Saturday, people are thinking, oh, maybe Red Bull are getting closed in on then just on, on the race. They're just absolutely in a, in a different class, certainly with Verstappen just disappearing into the distance. You didn't even need to take that extra pit stop at the end to get fastest lap because you already had it. One of the things that I uh, enjoyed from all of this was um, obviously Lewis made that comment on uh, Saturday after qualifying about, you know, where's this Red Bull DRS advantage gone and, oh, they were so far in front and now they're not anymore. But it's like, uh, and this isn't a thing about Lewis in particular. I saw, saw loads of people on social with it as well and even some people within f1 and within the paddock the short-term memory situation is astonishing to me because this has been the case for a lot of races this season where actually the the, the qualifying fight's close but then just Verstappen just flexes his and the rb19's muscles on sunday and disappeared and i i thought it was really strange to be talking about oh you know must it's really suspicious there must be a dodgy reason why red bull suddenly within everybody's grasp when this was the car that two races ago absolutely obliterated everybody in austria and had everybody at arm's length at Silverstone. And then, lo and behold, once, as soon as he hit the front, Verstappen just absolutely smashed everybody to smithereens today. So all those people that were suddenly suggesting that the, you know, the the, the, the Red Bull were, had been held back or pegged back, or there was, you know, suddenly they were they were vulnerable. Um, they, they all went a bit quiet after the race on Sunday. 
it was clear that Verstappen was not happy with the car because he was saying after qualifying, it said, it's not actually that I didn't get pole that I'm not particularly happy. It's just because the balance was pretty horrible and it's pretty much the worst that it can be for me. It didn't give him what he what he wanted. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I think there were some people seeing some mirages there, thinking there might be some uh, exciting stage being set, but instead it was the record equaling 12th win. Well, I think people are very blinded by hope, aren't they? I think they, they kind of see what they, they want to see. Probably if, if it had been a Ferrari that had been on pole, I imagine there'd be a lot less optimism that they could follow it for on Sunday. But I think people just kind of have the perception of, you know, uh, Mercedes usually usually quicker on a Sunday than a Saturday. So if they managed to get pole on Saturday, I think people were sort of drawn into the fact that maybe they could hold it together on Sunday, which obviously was uh, very much not the case. And the upshot was that record-breaking 12th consecutive win, which is an absolutely astonishing uh, record from Red Bull. And to be honest, that number could climb and climb. Christian Horner was asked whether they could win all the races after uh, after the race and he, he sort of he sort of jumped off that and just talked up the record but he's always, they'll, they'll he's always asked about it he's always, he always he's always asked about it and he hates being asked about it well, but it's it? funny because it must be similar to my sort of position on it only i don't know obviously it's not my team so I, it won't be quite such a thing but i sort of st- i've been saying yeah there's bound to be one where they trip up but the further you get into the season the more likely it is that it can be done there's still a slight worry that Perez isn't reliably second or even unreliably second in uh, in recent times. But uh, yeah, winning every race, absolutely internally, that'll be their target. Great way to keep the team really focused as well. Now, Scott, McLaren, we were expecting things to be a little bit harder for McLaren at the Hungaroring as well. It's not quite as slow as it once was given the downforce of modern cars. It is a far cry from Silverstone. So what does the fact Lando Norris finished second tell us about where the team is at on top of what we saw in Austria and Silverstone. Yeah, so not to say that the fourth place in Austria and the podium and performance at Silverstone you know, didn't mean anything, but I feel like this podium, this result, this all-round performance this weekend is hope of, or what we're not even hope of, proof of a sort of deeper level of McLaren progress. It isn't just that they've made the bits that they're really good at even better. And on high-speed circuits and circuits with favorable characteristics they're going to be up there and then they'll just disappear when we get to a slightly more difficult track or weekend for them because that's what this was supposed to be this this circuit that Lando Norris and Andrea Stella actually I think on Thursday and Saturday respectively did a very good job of explaining this isn't actually the total worst case scenario some people thought and that actually McLaren with what they'd said after Silverstone had kind of built up as well it is obviously a slower speed circuit than Silverstone but as you say it's not quite the ultra slow speed one it's certainly not Monaco without the walls is it as that cliched description of the Hungara ring goes so there's actually a a proliferation of medium speed corners at this track where the car the McLaren is actually quite good now so the upgrade package the upgrades that they've brought have made that car stronger, not just in high speed, but in medium speed. And that's what this has validated. They're still giving away time in the slow speed corners. So turn one, turn two, the chicane, turn 12, those slow long corners are still a bit of a problem for McLaren. But they've clearly made progress. They've raised that basement. It's not just the ceiling, the basement levels come up as well. And and Piastri put it quite nicely after the race when he said, these would have been nightmare conditions, a nightmare scenario for McLaren just a few races ago. Ultra hot track temps on a slow, medium speed circuit. But it's not the stuff of nightmares anymore. It's a car that can 
that's good enough for both to be on the second row of the grid, both to fight for podiums, one to stay there. And the way Norris held off Perez at the end, that was just perfectly judged. Just everything about it showed driver and car both belong right at the very front. Yeah, very impressive from McLaren. I think this does show, I mean, it's not right at the opposite end of the scale, but it's in a different place in the in the spectrum in terms of the track sensitivity. So yeah, very, very impressed. And I think the thing that most impressed me about McLaren is they were very confident about this. And I remember thinking, could be a bit misplaced confidence because you, you don't normally get teams making this leap, but they've absolutely nailed it. There's still a long way to go, but this has turned a season that was going nowhere into something really quite impressive. And they're definitely in that second place group now. Yeah, well, we were talking earlier, weren't we? Um, we're grabbing some food on the way back to, to record this. Um, how many points McLaren have scored in the last three races? Transformative. I think they had 17 points or something after seven races this season, and now they're on 80? Yeah, just absolutely picking up mega results. But one thing, again, in this race, Oscar Piastri probably didn't get uh, what he should have got. So what happened to his pace? Because he looked so comfortable in the first stint when he ran second. So he picked up some uh, some floor damage, which McLaren put down to probably a couple of trips off off the track, including the one that McLaren forlornly tried to get Piastri to grass up Sergio Perez for quote-unquote forcing him off uh, the track, but the stewards obviously took no action against that, and I think probably rightly so. So Piastri wasn't making any excuses. He said that it was tyre management, but he didn't know exactly the reason why. Suspected maybe he just didn't do quite as good a job because this is probably the most extreme deg situation, and it's more thermal, I think, than actually, you know, the, you know, the physical wear or anything like that. But just uh, as tyre management challenges go, it's the first time he's really been up against it like this in this scenario so as he put it just learning the key lesson the hard way um andrea stella tried to cut his driver a little bit of slack and tell us you know that he did have damage and that it was actually quite pronounced costing him a few attempts a lap and also the nature of it because it would have been pure load would have exaggerated the 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 tire issues so then it obviously it's this compound effect over the course of a stint and I would reckon that probably did explain a decent amount of why Piastri's second and third stints were so inconsistent in particular. That last stint was pretty weak. Um, so I think we can give him the benefit of the doubt, but I like that he himself was happy to front up and say, maybe I just didn't do a good enough job. Yeah, and I think, again, it reflects McLaren's progress that a bad race for Oscar Piastri or either McLaren driver not so long ago would have been kind of 19th, whereas now you can actually have a slightly disappointing race with a bit of damage and less pace than you should have, and you're still fifth, which is uh, is saying something. But yeah, absolutely fantastic progress from McLaren. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com 
forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, Mark, we'll get on to Daniel Ricciardo's weekend and his comeback in a moment. But first, what did you make of Sergio Perez's performance over the three days? He qualified ninth, finished third, crashed on his first flying lap of the weekend, did at least make Q3, but then was only <laughs> only ninth. So, uh, yeah, how would you evaluate it? Well, I'll put aside the first flying lap of, of the weekend incident, um, just for reasons of charity, really. But... Um, did you know he's got the he's got the fastest car on the play, place on race day by a ridiculous margin, you know shared with his teammate. Anything other than a podium, even starting P nine, would have been a disappointment. And yeah, he made some great passing moves along the way, but he you know he's loaded with about ten percent more grip. So, you know, bottom line is he shouldn't have needed to make those moves. The car wasn't great in qualifying, but only. Only by its own standards, he was six tenths off max, P9 in a Red Bull. That's just not the performance of an elite driver, but it was a decent platform, I suppose, to to build his recovery on. Um, he, he hopefully can take a bit of confidence from it and stop being more like the Sergio Perez he was um, in the first part of the season. I'm not going to defend him for the uh, for the the FP1. Uh for reasons of charity I think uh, that was a slightly concerning mistake it, it suggested to me a driver who was trying to kind of Verstappen his way into it and just be right first flying lap I'm going to be really good and uh, just sort of pushing himself to a moment of slight imprecision I mean you do see drivers make those mistakes but it's a pretty horrible moment for it to happen but yeah he wasn't he wasn't too bad was he Scott in terms of the underlying pace was reasonable and actually probably had Q3 allowed him to show the underlying pace he probably had been four or five places further up the grid and probably looking a little bit more solid and probably could have finished second from that. oh he'd have definitely been fourth on the grid at least and I think he probably would have been two or three temps off for Stappen but then again I think part of the thing that Mark's mentioning there with the, the deficit is that Max didn't exactly hook up his lap did he so you can get into the theoreticals and then Checo's probably anywhere from two to six tenths, as Mark as Mark said. So you, you can make as much of an argument for him in qualifying as you can against him. But the the thing with, with this was that it wasn't like it wasn't like Silverstone and it wasn't like Montreal, where in mixed conditions he just didn't do a good enough job and just didn't have the pace. It's more like Austria, where he had the pace and through his own lack of performance, didn't translate that into um the right result now in austria that lack of performance is you know lack of sense to keep it within the white line and get yourself eliminated in uh, in in quite stupid fashion by having laps constantly deleted in this case the lack of performance comes in the form of not being there when you need it to be on the second run in q3 your final run of, of, of qualifying where you're just too tentative in the first couple of corners and then a little bit later around the first sector as well he just didn't execute but he had the pace. Like the, the, there, there was more pace there than, than it showed. So in a way, it was slightly different to a couple of the failures that we've seen in the last few. But it still added up to the same picture of of underperforming. And then I, I agree completely with what Mark was saying there. I, the, there's only so much credit you can give someone from getting a car back to one place behind where it should be anyway. Because he should have finished second in that race. Not from necessarily from ninth, but 
just on balance, that weekend should have been second. The Red Bull should have had a one-two. It was so much faster than everybody else. And I have a problem with these recovery drives being hailed as much as they do sometimes. Because didn't Checo get driver of the day? Yeah. And it's just that I just that like I, I all respect to him for that recovery drive, and he pulled off some good moves, and he's clear, clearly did a, a, a good job. You, you you can't over reward someone for having underachieved on on Saturday. So that's not how it works. Yeah, exactly. And I think even from ninth, second was achievable. It was only, what, three or four seconds away. And McLaren were kind of expecting him to uh, to make a proper fight of it. So, yeah, I think the fact that a weekend like this can be characterised as kind of a gently encouraging one says a lot about where Perez has been in recent races. And at least it's kind of, it's all right. Like you say, it's better than Silverstone. Actually, I'm going to um, I'm gonna be cheeky here. I'm going to throw a question to Mark quickly because this is going to help with something that I actually plan to write after this podcast, either tonight or tomorrow morning. Are you trying to trick Mark into doing your work for you? Yes, I'm going to uh, gonna get uh, AI to transcribe it and then pass it off as my own. Um, was You'd that have a to get se- YI to transcribe it rather than AI. <laughs> <laughs> um, was that a second place won by Lando Norris or lost by Checo? Um, definitely won by Lando. I mean, he, he was um, having to balance the the looking after the tyre with, uh, you know, n- responding but not responding too much. And it would have been easy to respond too much. And you heard him um, get a little bit ratty with the team when they, when they were reminding him of what he had to do. He wasn't right in the middle of doing it. And uh, <laughs> he said afterwards he'd been working on He's been working on trying to, um, you know, improve his communication manner. Um, but that, that was just a little bit, uh, they, 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 they advised him in a, a really stressful moment. But I, I, yeah, I think it was more won by Lando because um, it would have been easy to have just uh, pushed a little bit too hard there. And uh, Perez would have been right with him. And of course, Perez is a man who's under a little bit of pressure. So let's talk about the man who's putting him under pressure, Scott. You followed Daniel Ricciardo very, very closely throughout the weekend. He qualified and finished 13th. Nothing to write home about on paper. But how convincing was his comeback with Alpha Tauri? We followed Daniel Ricciardo very closely. I'm going to give you some credit for your exploits on Friday. Tell the listeners very quickly how, how devoted to the Ricciardo cause you were on Friday. Devoted enough to get excessively wet. <laughs> in the when the rain came that was the uh that was the danger um yeah i was uh out track side and it was spotting with rain and it didn't really commit to raining it was fine but then when it came down yeah that wasn't uh that wasn't very good but yeah i, I spent a lot of friday watching at uh, turn two to see his progress and it was quite interesting so it was quite a pronounced difference between him and sonoda he was taking a slightly wider line sonoda more hooking it up on, on a tighter line and but you could see them kind of didn't completely converge, but Ricardo moving more towards what uh, Sonoda was doing. But he, yeah, he looked absolutely fine. He was he was doing the job. And the purpose of that was that what, from from the get go on Friday, we wanted to make sure that we followed Ricardo's progress properly. Um, watching every lap on board, listening to the radio communications, watching trackside to form a bit of an opinion because it was a big deal. It was a huge story, and you can't really understand how he performs over the whole weekend and unless you really get into the meat of that. So I carried on that, yeah, through Saturday and Sunday. And I I think this was a really good um, first weekend back in Formula One from, from Ricardo. Um, I don't think I've been as convinced by him probably since he won at Monza in 2021. And even that weekend still had elements of, you know, his race day performance and also even the job he did in the, in, in the sprint at Monza that weekend was very good. You know, they were still lacking something to, to Norris and there's still an element there of, you know, well, actually how quick is he? How on top of this is he? Um, 
But there was just a lot about this weekend that I liked. Um, we talked from the very start on Thursday about how he's come into this with a slightly different attitude and approach. He'll do it his way, make it natural, and he'll just find a much, he'll do his best to make it work by doing it, it that way. For better or worse, he's not going to overcomplicate this and find himself going down rabbit holes like he did um, back in McLaren and what got so bad there. So he was chipping away at it all, all weekend, making progress, uh, cashing in opportunities to improve. I thought he did a good job in qualifying, really clean laps, hooked it up when Sonoda didn't. He did have, I'm. Um, this isn't anything the team has said, but just sort of reading between the lines of what things Yuki have said and others have said, probably had a tenth, tenth and a half in his pocket over Sonoda because he had the upgraded front wing that Sonoda should have had, but broke his on, on Friday, so didn't have use of it for the rest of the weekend. That could have swung it decisively in Ricardo's favour, but ultimately Sonoda also didn't just didn't hook the lap up when it when it counted. So Ricardo did execute better there. Um and then obviously he was an innocent victim of the turn one nonsense at the start caused by Joe Guan Yu um nerfing him into an Alpine and then that Alpine into another Alpine. But the actual Grand Prix performance itself was really, really impressive because Ricardo made the race happen for himself. That's what I really liked about it. Um, he got back onto the the tail of the the midfield pretty quickly after that that first corner issue because the car was basically undamaged. Um, certainly not to the point where Ricardo could feel it or the team could see any issue. And um, Ricardo basically made the call or pushed the team when he'd made after he'd made his first pit stop to reconsider the strategy and prioritise getting him in clear air as soon as possible for as long as possible because he'd got back to that group again at the start of his second stint and just couldn't get anywhere and he could feel the tyres were dying. So they cut a hard tyre stint short down to about 11 laps, I think, and it set him up for a 39-lap, 38-lap run on mediums. Um, so he had to do he had to do a, a lot of running and, and a lot of work. But he basically said, prioritise this and his performance in the first stint, the time management and everything, I think he'd given Alpha Tauri confidence that he might actually be able to pull it off. They put him on the, the, the medium, asked him to do a super long stint, and, and he did it. And I think by doing that, he meant that he, he gave himself the chance to learn as much as possible because it was actually a clean race rather than, you know, tucked in dirty air a second and a half behind the car in front. So... I thought there was a, really was a lot to like about this weekend. I, I had my doubts about what form Ricardo would come back in and I would certainly wouldn't say this means he's cracked it or he's going to be on top of the car or on top of Sonoda, but it's about as encouraging a start to things as I think you could have hoped for for him and he could hope for for himself. Yeah, still a long way to go, but a nice, yeah, a nice encouraging solid start. Good progress, yeah, and, and the race. It's so easy to look at the race and think, oh, that wasn't very good because because of what the final result was. But yeah, he was basically last of the runners anyway uh, at the uh, the start of the race. And yeah, that was quite well executed. And even at the end of the race, he was given a little bit of license to attack once Hulkenberg had dropped to like 11 seconds or something back. They said, well, if you've got any ties, you can go after Bottas a bit, having had to manage quite extensively. And he, he was about three seconds off Bottas. And then in the end, the gap was, I think, about twice that because on the last lap, he had to lift for blue flags to let Norris through. So um, yeah, that slightly exaggerated the gap between those two. So yeah, like you say, it wasn't a miracle weekend or anything, but yeah, a very, very positive start. And yeah, he was pretty happy when he was speaking over the radio at the end of it. It's a shame about turn one, but yeah, we showed a bit of pace and uh, and and lots of learning. So that's very encouraging. 
Uh, Mark, should we move back into the top 10 now? Not quite as deep into it as these teams we're about to talk about would have liked because very much on the bottom part of it. But Ferrari and Aston Martin felt this track would suit their cars heading into the weekend. But they ended up locking out 7th through 10th with Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, Fernando Alonso and Lance Stroll. So how do you explain their collective disappointment? Aston looks to have lost its way. Some direction they've taken or development they've made isn't working as it should. It was consistently the second or third fastest car on the first part of the season. Um, in the last four races, it's been nowhere near that. And I I don't know. And I, they, they give every appearance of not knowing either. Um, it's it's quite it's quite a puzzle. Uh, but there, is, there are aspects of the Hungara ring which... Um, could be troubling for it. It has actually got a big spread of corner speeds, as Scott was talking about earlier on. And it, it, it's it's considered slow, but it's not. It's it, it's it's a mixture of slow and medium. Um, and it, when that it, it has shown before that when the spread of corner speeds is too big, it it, it struggles. It's, so it's that's something to do with its aerodynamic map. It, it you know it, how it works, different ride heights. And probably in the the transition, but yeah, it's it, it's it's got to be more than just that. Um, but yeah, maybe this track wasn't as uh, favourable to, to the to those limitations um, as it might have been. Ferrari, it was just a typical Ferrari weekend, wasn't it? They're they're up and down in their competitiveness according to the track. And here you need to protect the rear tyres, and the car just could not do that. It was faster than the Aston, but half a minute behind the McLaren, over a minute behind Verstappen, and mixed in there with just some scrappy errors. Typical Ferrari weekend errors. One from Leclerc with his pit lane speed, and then he locked up coming in. One at the actual stop where the left rear wheel gun malfunctioned. Uh, a bit of handbags among the drivers about who gets priority, etc. It's just, it's just not top team at the moment, but it's... It's got a car that's fully capable of being best of the rest, just not around here. Um, so, yeah, that's just where they're at. And it would be no surprise if they're quick again at Spa next weekend. Yeah, the Aston Martin drivers, you know, they were completely lost after the race for, for what had happened. We were given different reasons throughout the weekend, different reasons after Silverstone. You know, I think they they, they are, as, as Mark said, very lost. And and when Alonso was sort of asked when he thinks this might turn around, he, he really just couldn't say. He was, you know... After the summer break, perhaps, but uh, even then, you know, there's, there's clearly plenty of work for, for them to do. And, and on Ferrari, I think clearly those probably errors are definitely a result of the, their kind of general lack of pace and their, and their general... The result's not coming. You know, the driver's probably just pushing a, a bit too much. Um, and, you know, the pit stop errors as well. I feel like it's it's all just come together for, uh, yeah, a, a bad weekend for them. When you look at that kind of fight for, for second, you know, they're definitely one of the the least convincing teams unfortunately and, and what's making it worse and what's kind of punishing their errors and their lack of pace or the strategy errors we've seen in previous races is obviously now McLaren are up there now Alpine can be up there sometimes now even Alfa Romeo can be up there sometimes you know I think on, on certain weekends we're going to continue to see them 9th, 10th or sometimes outside the points if, uh, if this kind of form this kind of errors this kind of pace continues yeah, Fred Vasseur reckoned Leclerc would have finished fifth without the wheel gun problem and the speeding uh, penalty, which um, ultimately he reckoned 
cost him about 20 seconds of race time when you factor in the extra traffic time loss and that kind of thing but he did also admit the team's making too many mistakes it was interesting I spoke to Mike Crack the Aston Martin team principal after the race and he said yeah this was a reality check the fact they actually had a pretty well executed race and P9 P10 for Alonso and Stroll on merit it was interesting because he when he was talking about the reality check I thought back to his media session the day before when he'd said oh yeah well if you look at the gap our gap to the front is pretty much what it was it was all quite condensed a few people moved ahead but we're not losing ground and that seemed quite positive a take and when he talked about the reality check I said so have you revised your opinion a little bit from where you were yesterday and he said yeah yeah I've had to because I think the team basically thought they'd given up a chunk of qualifying performance for race performance and were quite confident about the race performance and then the Sunday race they're like this isn't really what we're uh, we're looking for and I, I think ultimately yeah the as you said Mark the the range of corner profiles would be part of it and the fact it's a maximum downforce one as well within that probably points a little bit to perhaps one of the areas where they're they're lacking compared to a few interesting to see how they go on a compromise circuits uh d- down the line i think they can still have some good days not gonna be ninth and tenth every time but yeah some uh, some work to be done there josh should we talk about alpine we could talk about their race in real time and only fill a few seconds given both pierre gasly and esteban ocon were effectively out at the first corner and i suppose if we're talking about alpine's race really we're talking about joe guan Yu's first corner blunder aren't we huge opportunity for him p5 on the grid done a great job in q3 really good qualifying lap and this was the kind of first time probably in his whole career we've seen him in such a you know, with, with an opportunity to, to score big and to, to, to kind of prove himself in the same way that the, you know, Piastri has done this year. Joe finally kind of had his chance and, and unfortunately it all went very, very wrong for him. You know, even kind of putting to one side the poor launch, obviously he unfortunately ruined it with the 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 lockup. You know, he's kind of blamed the the, the dirty air for, for causing a kind of four-car collision. Um but I think ultimately he seemed to be a, a bit rattled by what happened on the initial launch. I think by the time he got to turn one, he's probably thinking, oh, I need to make up some positions. Just got a bit distracted. Clearly seemed very frustrated. And unfortunately, ultimately, I think buckled under the pressure of his biggest chance in F1 yet, which is a, a big shame for him because he's been making such strides. He's been showing, you know, well compared to, to Valtteri Bottas. He showed that in qualifying, got a great lap in, but completely undid it with uh, both the launch and the, in particular on his side in, in, in into turn one. And I think your suggestion that perhaps it was a direct consequence of that poor start, obviously where he was was a consequence of that, but just not kind of refocusing. But he was on the radio immediately after that launch saying, oh, there's something wrong. And it's like, yeah, okay, but you probably just need to focus on the approach to turn one get on the radio a little bit later you know that the bad launch has happened you're not going to get it again uh, I did ask Chevy Pujolar the head of trackside engineering after the race what caused it and he said that it was something to do with the brake system strategy that he said kicked a fail safe in so on a fail safe on the engine side so that kind of put it into a, a safe pull away mode rather than a, a race launch so uh, yeah that was a disaster but the worst thing for Alfa Romeo is the car directly behind Joe was Valtteri Bottas who basically lost three places as a result of that and then he lost another three places because he did some questionable car positioning in in the early seconds of the race as well first few corners so yeah just the best day of the season on Saturday for Alfa Romeo P5 P7 just turned to dust in a few seconds
Not as bad as an outcome, though, as it was for the Alpines that they were skittled <laughs> by, Joe. I mean, this is, it's funny because we, we talked about this at the start of the season, how long before Ocon and Gasly collide. And they had the one in Australia that they were sort of able to gloss over. And then they had this one here, which uh, 100%, nothing they could have done. It was just, it was just absolutely wrong place, wrong time. Real shame for Gasly, actually, because he'd absolutely barreled down the outside and he was actually putting himself in quite a good position. But yeah, just, you know, you cannot blame in any way Ocon and Gasly for that that had come off the back of a Saturday in which they were both pretty downcast and sort of feeling like oh didn't expect it to be this difficult was hoping that this would actually suit us which had nothing on either the medium or the hard so they'd they'd had a little bit of a negative Saturday and I think they were looking forward to coming out fighting on Sunday and their races lasted about 15 seconds yeah I can't think of, of two teammates as well who have sort of been you know through no fault of their own, they've collided not once in the season, but twice. It, it, it is bad luck, but also, as um, Ocon pointed out, you know they're in that position because they've had that bad qualifying. When you're in the midfield, you're always going to be more prone to, to stuff like this happening. So there's clearly work to do for Alpine. I honestly think that Saturday was more disappointing than not scoring anything on Sunday because just the, the lack of pace, the lack of understanding, the fact that Ocon said he felt like he did a pretty much perfect lap and it was only P12, you know, that's going to be far more worrying for Alpine, I think, in the long term than an incident where, you know, neither driver is at fault and, and these things happen. We know that uh, not- Joe has been learning an awful lot from, from Bottas as teammates. Uh, do you think he looked a little bit too closely at Bottas's start in Hungary in 2021? Uh, yeah, the uh, yeah the demolishing everyone. Well, Esteban Ocon uh, benefited from that. So uh, I, guess the, I guess what goes around comes around, doesn't it? It all sort of um, escalated, didn't it, from the car just not working on the the, the tyres. So they with, the, with the, the the system that we had this weekend with the hards Q1, mediums Q2, and softs in Q3, it was, it was actually really quick on the softs, but of course you couldn't use them until you got to Q3. And because it was so slow on the mediums, it, it couldn't get to Q3. And the, the irony is it would have probably looked quite good if it had somehow got it, it scraped into Q3 on the mediums. It would have probably been quite good on the softs. So, yeah, it all just escalated, didn't it, and just went downhill. And also the curious point there is they struggled on the mediums more than the hards as well. The hards weren't great, but the mediums, they just they just couldn't get them in for the early part of the lap. So, yeah, Ferrari had similar problems, actually. They said the hards were actually a bit easier to work with than the mediums. So that does, yeah, as you say, the, the alternative tyre allocation, that sums up the challenge of going hard, medium, soft in Q1, Q2, Q3, because you always get a slightly different balance, slightly different performance across the different compounds. So it creates an extra dimension of, of challenge. The next trial of this will be Monza. Of course, this is an initiative sustainability-driven, the, the change of qualifying regs is entirely incidental. It's not a gimmick. It's just a way to make having 11 sets of slicks for each driver work, save two sets of slicks for every for every driver, and that's quite a big saving. It's not far off 4,000 tyres a year they could save over a 24-race season by having 11 sets rather than 13. So interesting to see whether that's adopted long-term. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. 
No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, as always, the final part of our race review podcast is reserved for questions from the Race Members Club. Head to the race.com and click on Join the Race to find out more. And our first question is from Danny Elliott, which I'll point at you, Mark. He says, do you have any thoughts on the Ferrari strategy and not allowing Science to pass Leclerc in the early phase of the race? Science had the soft tyres and Leclerc was on the hard compound. Then, further into the race, the reverse was in play, with Leclerc querying the team's decision not to switch positions. Can sort of get it actually. Where Signs was on the grid, he was more or less, um, you know, they they were they, they threw a joker card by starting him on the soft, and it did work, and that had got him a lot of places on the first lap. But it, as a as a strategy over the over the race distance, that that strategy of, of, of soft and then then going on to medium. It was a lot slower than the you know the optimum one that Leclerc was on over a over a race distance. So. When when science was um, you know being held up by Leclerc because he was on the softs, it would very soon if if they'd swapped them, they would very soon have been a situation where science was holding up Leclerc, um, so they'd have lost even more time swapping them around again. They would have been compromising the guy who was on theoretically a much better strategy. So I get that, and in the second one. It made sense to jump Leclerc ahead as he had more pace and they were by then on the same tyre, but that was, you know, um, without taking into account Leclerc locking up, going into the pit lane and then the, 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 the gun not working. Next question for you, Josh. Do you think Kevin Magnussen is under pressure and could lose his seat at Haas next year? Hulkenberg is clearly getting the best out of the car over one lap, but should Magnussen be doing better? His saving grace may be that there isn't anyone obvious who I can think of to replace him with. Well, Magnussen was very honest this weekend, both on Saturday and Sunday after qualifying the race. Essentially, he said that, you know, this car, the way it's evolved, especially just doesn't suit his driving style, that his driving style kind of brings the worst out in the car and and, and just kind of makes it very difficult for him to do what what Hulkenberg does. Um, and, and he's just not able to do that, especially over one lap. It's, it's very much exaggerated there. A lot of race performances this year, you'll often see Magnussen more or less match Hulkenberg or, or sometimes beat him. There are definitely a lot more evenly matched on Sundays, but on Saturdays, yeah, it, it's been extremely one-sided. I think the, the job Hulkenberg has done over one lap this year um, and had many good weekends as well, obviously, like in Austria, for example, I thought Hulkenberg w- was brilliant. You know, he's done such a good job that it has definitely put the spotlight back on, on Magnussen in terms of being under pressure. You know, I think it really all comes down to does Haas and, and Magnussen think this is a, a solvable thing? Do they think that within this season they can either engineer the car 
you know, differently to kind of more be accommodating to, to Magnus' driving style or does Magnus think he can kind of drive around this and, and learn to drive in a slightly different way, which doesn't kind of, well, yeah, it doesn't mean that he's suffering, especially over one lap. Obviously, one lap is where the Haas is at its strongest as well. So he's losing out there. Um, so I, th I think it, it will depend on that. Everything Gunter has said about the driver lineup for next year has always been about that he's happy with his drivers. He's ready to sit down with his drivers. I think Hulkenberg's already more or less, you know, even if he didn't have a contract now, he'd, he'd be completely safe to, to, to stay there next year. You know, maybe there's a bit of doubt over Magnussen. In terms of the other options, I think there's always some great talent in, in Formula 2. But, you know, Magnussen's a, a great Grand Prix driver. He's was excellent last year, especially when the, when the Haas was really strong. Haas know exactly how good a driver he is. So I think if they have plenty of faith in him, I think they'll they'll stick with him and, and just kind of work through these problems and and get him back to the driver they know he can be. I suspect when it comes down to it, it's the fact that Magnussen likes a little bit of an understeer balance. He considers that a fairly neutral balance, but he's he likes a little bit of understeer in it and Hulkenberg's quite happy with a bit more rear instability. The car's certainly got a bit of that. So I think that's probably the, the, the very broad brushstroke reason why struggling. That question incidentally came from Tom Bannister, who I rather unfairly didn't name check when I asked it. Scott, a question from Phil Wright, who says, it looked like at the start that Sonoda was well ahead of Ricardo, given the first lap antics. So what happened in the race to mean Ricardo ended up ahead after all? And with Ricardo beating Sonoda in qualifying in the race, what does this mean for Sonoda's reputation? So the positional change came about, initially Sonoda lost ground at the pit stop, the slow pit stop, but he was still, um, uh, he was still still running ahead. He'd run um, the softs early on, so he was among the sort of early stoppers. Um, but as I was saying earlier with Ricardo's race, when he made his first pit stop and came back out, um, caught back up to that midfield group and was off the back of it so Ricardo was running around last on the road um Ricardo wanted to go aggressive with that look uh, and and got himself into a position where he had to do that ultra long final stint but pit so early and set himself up for such a long stint that very very few wanted to follow I think Albon followed just a couple of laps later and Sargent a few laps after that but nobody else really wanted to pull the pin at that point which gave Ricardo quite a quite a chunky run on a set of mediums that in clear air he was able to actually chip away at so you know he was getting messages Ricardo was getting messages all the time from his race engineer that's it you've cleared Sargent you've cleared Magnussen you've cleared Joe you've cleared um, Hulkenberg you've cleared Yuki so that's how he got ahead he chipped away at all of these cars got to the point where when everyone else made their stops that Ricardo had already made they'd fall behind him it was all about getting track position and then because his management of the tyre had been so good and he consistently had this clear air, everyone else was rejoining and rejoining around the cars that they were fighting with before. So even though they went through a phase of them being a chunk quicker than Ricardo, Yuki being one of them, they were never going to make up the ground. So that's how Sonoda ended up falling behind and then not being able to cru crucially not come back. And Yuki described his weekend as having zero positives from it. He knew that he'd slightly under-delivered in qualifying and then the pit stop's not his fault, but he felt that he maybe under-delivered slightly in the race and just didn't quite like hook it all up. I think he's probably a bit harsh on himself in the Grand Prix because once you lose track position on a circuit like this, I think you are a little bit stuck. Um, I thought it was an okay performance, but that's that's how having 
um, diverged so dramatically on the opening lap with Ricardo going backwards and Yuki jumping up to 11th, they ended up in a position where Yuki was the frustrated, frustrated one and Ricardo was encouraged rather than discouraged. The next question on a similar topic I'll take is from Jolly Fricks, who says, if Daniel Ricciardo outperforms Yuki Tsunoda over the rest of the season, as he did this weekend, should Tsunoda be worried about his seat for 2024, seeing as he doesn't yet have a contract and Red Bull have both Lawson waiting in the wings and the possibility of a swap between Ricciardo and Perez? Yes, well, I would say the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend, Ricciardo overall did do a better job, but actually I don't think Tsunoda's performance was... Uh, was definitively slower. In fact, I think he was probably a bit quicker for reasons we talked about earlier. And yeah, all of them should be concerned because um, by that I mean Perez, Ricardo, Sonoda and Lawson because there's four drivers and there's three seats. And that means one of them is going to be disappointed. Obviously, Lawson could win Super Formula. Really, that should get him a, a place on the grid. Obviously, Ricardo, if he doesn't displace Perez at Red Bull, a good chance he'll be at AlphaTauri next year. So there's just this chain there of, uh, of, of stress that will be uh, resolved. But basically, your best bet of staying in F1 if you're an AlphaTauri driver is make sure you're the one who performs better over the rest of the season. That's going to have to play out over the coming races. Mark, a question for you from Sebastiano Russo. He says, I was very surprised by the qualifying result, the gaps between the teams and drivers were very very small i don't really think it's down to the different tire allocation regulation for this weekend what are your thoughts on it it's one of those tracks where it's less about aero efficiency than than most tracks so you can whack on the downforce and the, the cost in drag is is not very punishing to, to lap time so that tends to squash the field up a bit i, I think it was only that Josh, next up, question for you from shane moss who says i think that the qualifying format trial is the right thing to do do you think so it's a tricky one, isn't it? I, I mean, I enjoyed the qualifying session, but I think ultimately, if this was a normal qualifying session, it would have still been extremely exciting. You know, it's fun as a one-off. I wouldn't want to see it every single weekend, but I think the the sprint weekends have kind of opened the door to experimenting, and and so this kind of felt less egregious than I think it would have done a few years ago. I, I was happy for it. It was a nice change and uh yeah i enjoyed it but honestly i think qualifying would have been almost just as good without it ed can i um throw a second part of shane's question at you because i think you're the resident expert on this um if the format's kept when we don't have if we didn't have tire blankets for next year which is obviously in the offing for 2024 how would that affect this so it's basically blanketless hard tires <laughs> to go out and try and do a flying lap do you think that would work yeah, I, th I think if the blanketless tires come in, it, it's perfectly workable. Um, there's still some questions with the ATA about the amount of practice running. There was some criticism of that, but I, I think I think it can work because the, the blanketless tires they're being designed to not take 20 laps to warm up or something. They are designed. The hope is that they will be there in a lap. I mean, the hardest compound may be a little bit different, but uh, yeah, we'll have to see if that goes through. That's going to be voted on next week by the F1 Commission. Need five teams to support it. Pirelli say the product is ready. FIA and F1 have asked them to work on it. So it's just going to depend if five teams vote on it. And imagine an alter alternative tyre allocation set, um, session with blanketless tyres Q1 on the hards, rolling out Las Vegas in November, 9 degrees, 11pm in the evening or whatever stupid time qualifying is going to be and just everybody just skate, like, like driving around like they're on an ice rink. Yeah, it's all possible, but it all adds to the challenge, doesn't it? I mean, just it's going to be the same for everyone. That's what's always said. Now, Scott, Elliot Crossman's question is, does Lewis Hamilton's performance in qualifying prove that he has a tendency to step it up in the final run of Q3 when he's going for pole position, which doesn't translate as well to quali sessions where he's not fighting at the very front? Um, I don't 
think so. I think it's more indicative of the fact that Lewis is generally quite good at making it. I, I think he's very good at hooking up when it counts. He, he can have moments through qualifying where he doesn't quite do that, but more often than not, he, he does deliver um, when the pressure's on in Q3. It's just obviously the last 18 months. He hasn't had a car that when he does that, it, it results in pole. Um, I think obviously he did in this situation and, and and pulled it off. But a second factor is how good he is around this circuit. You know, He loves the Hungaro ring. He's capable of doing special things here. And just listening to him after after qualifying and talking through sort of how he approached that lap and a, a couple of team bosses actually I spoke to on Saturday and Sunday observed that, um, you know, Lewis was really, really leaning on the car and, and, and throwing it around and just taking that little bit of extra risk. So he just seemed to be absolutely on it, willing to push it to the limit. And I just don't think we see that very often, which is probably why sometimes you either see him mess up in Q3 or do a good job, but it just doesn't maybe get the plaudits because it doesn't end up in a great position. Next question I'll take from Andrew Wilson. He says, a question regarding Alonso's statement regarding the tyres. Has it had a detrimental impact on Aston Martin, Red Bull and potentially Alpine while benefiting McLaren and maybe with more evidence, other teams like Mercedes and Alfa Romeo? This refers to the change in the tyres for Silverstone. Well, the change is not very big. Every team pretty much says it's not a significant change, including actually Aston Martin. Tom McCulloch says it wasn't significant. Mike Crack said the same thing. It's only really Alonso pointing to that. And yeah, it hasn't led to massive, well, it's only changes in ride heights and that kind of thing. The tyre is still very, very similar. It's just a bit of a material change designed to deal with the fact that tyres need to be more robust because of what Pirelli puts as a, at a 15% increase in vertical load on the front and rear axle because of the aerodynamic downfalls growth from, uh, from last year. The only thing I will say that might have anything for Alonso is is obviously he referred to the feel and obviously the drivers are uh, a remarkable sensor in the car because they're the point where it all comes together so he might be feeling something but there is nothing in any of those performance swings that is not able to be explained entirely by upgrades by track characteristics by execution etc so I actually think Alonso's slightly clutching at straws there and I think he's just trying to say correlation equals causation on that and unless somebody in Aston Martin comes up with some reason why it's had the why that's the case or they can say oh actually we've had to radically change this or it's had this aero impact all of which they're saying no about that that's the point where you, you'll start taking that more seriously Mark a question for you from Leon Roberton who says following Red Bull's 12th consecutive win and Verstappen's 7th in a row where would you rank this era of dominance compared to other eras such as Hamilton Mercedes Vettel Red Bull and Schumacher Ferrari it's comparable with them isn't it that the, Hamilton one for much of it we at least had a, a tough teammate and they went at it and Vettel and Weber also um, this is more like the Schumacher one but Verstappen dominant by dint of performance alone not not also contractual um, he's, he's, he's an all-time great driver but he's, he's not paired with a Rosberger or Weber so his, his dominance is even greater and it's they're, they're, they're each very different you know they in terms of uh, like the Ferrari Schumacher one, it was very much driver centric. It was all centered around the massive talent of, of Michael, and, and he brought his own people with him. And uh, the whole thing was, you know, just he was ab absolutely the, the center of the force field. And it was structured that way on purpose. Um, the Vettel, the Vettel one, he was. It's not quite as close a link as that, but it was very sort of, sort of like a family atmosphere between the, him and the team. And he was, you know, he was definitely the favoured son there. Um, 
the the the, the, the max one is it's it's more it's more challenging. I think they they challenge each other a bit more than than any of those um, previous ones did. They, he's you know he's there because they have provided them with the best car, and uh, he thinks this is the where his his best chances of of, of success is going to be, and. The, the you know you, the, the 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 sort of the way his relationship he has with um uh, his his race engineer um is 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 quite you know quite challenging and and quite combative sometimes and I think that's how it is um generally in in terms of performance with with him and the the team but um you know they know how to manage their drivers and they know how. What what his driver needs, and his his needs are quite different to those of um, Sebastian Vettel's, and they just adapt. Uh, they're a great team. They 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 have a great sort of three hundred and sixty degree understanding of of, of what's required. And um, I, I, yeah, it, it, they're each different in a way. I wouldn't rate one above any of the others, but they yeah, it's it, it's definitely comparable to any of those that you mentioned. Next question for you, Josh, from Danny Elliott. Should pit lane speeding offences be more severe than the five-second time penalty, or do you agree with the penalty, inspired by Leclerc, this question? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fair enough penalty, as long as they're not massively over. I think, you know, it being comparable to a few track limits offences, I think that's uh, that's about right. You don't want to completely take the driver out of whatever race they're in, but equally, you want them to be punished if they do make a mistake. So five seconds for me, that's uh, that's perfect. Yeah, and ultimately it means there's absolutely zero benefit to be gained from just picking up half a second from that, so no one's going to risk it. That's the uh, important thing. Scott, a question from Thomas Knight. If McLaren keep improving the car and maximising it and Ferrari keep meandering and get their car strategy pit stops and qualifying all wrong, could McLaren target P4 in the second half of the season or is the gap too big? Uh, I think they can. Um, you, you mentioned this earlier when we were um, sort of chatting about it, the putting the... McLaren um, score into into context of how many points they've got over the last uh, three races alone, and you know it's it's fifty eight thirteen in McLaren's favour over the last two Grand Prix, um, and the gap's only eighty points, and you can say only eighty in that context because that's an astonishing um, number to 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 have. It's um, it's almost in a very aggressive inversion of what we saw towards the end of the 21 season when Ferrari came on really strong, overhauled McLaren and, and left them behind. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't think McLaren were going to be capable of ending the season with a four fastest car, but they've got to mid-season with comfortably the four fastest car and on a given day, the second fastest. So I was wrong about that. Maybe I'm. I, I could easily be wrong about them not becoming the you know the fourth team in the constructors championship. I, I I think it is at least feasible. I can raise you on that and even float the very mild possibility of third place potentially even being possible. It's a it's a ninety seven point gap, so that's quite a sizable gap. But I think if Aston Martin continue on this trend, then they are going to be in trouble because they are going to be you know, leaking more points is all going to depend on their recovery. You know, should they recover and should they get anywhere back near the level of the start of the season? I think they'll be pretty safe. But if that trend continues and McLaren keeps racking up these points, I don't think that's even out of the possibility or at least to be a lot closer uh, than it is now. 
Well, at the current closing rate, based on the last two races, they'd overhaul Ferrari in two races and Aston Martin in three more races. But that's been quite an extreme offset. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to track that one. And the final question I'll take... Max Verstappen looks like he'll wrap up the title with five or six races to spare, and has talked of not wanting to stay around in F1 forever. If you were Christian Horner, would you try to persuade Max to take the end of the season off to recharge and come back refreshed for 2024? I would definitely, definitely not even vaguely attempt that, because if there's one thing Max Verstappen loves, it's winning, and he wants to be in that car right the way to the end of the season. There's absolutely uh, no doubt on uh, on that one. So, yeah, I wouldn't even try that. And if I tried, I would fail. And I think, yeah, Max is going to be looking at winning every remaining race this season. He's going to want a second half of the year like Sebastian Vettel did in Red Bull in, in uh, 2013. Just keep winning and winning and winning. And I remember Sebastian Vettel saying then, the reason you want to keep winning when you can and not ease off is you never know when you'll have it so good again. And, you know, Sebastian Vettel never had it as good as he did again in 2013. So it shows why you have to make hay while the sun shines. And we should say that question came from Gordon Ross. Well, thanks very much, Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell-Malm and Josh Suttill for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there on the fallout from the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend. I almost forgot what country you were in there for a minute, but uh, I got through it. Do head to our YouTube channel as well. Lots of videos to watch there and also listen to some of our other podcasts covering IndyCar, the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson, Bring Back V10s. Well, we haven't got long to go until the Belgian Grand Prix, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.